The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. John Scholes here along with Stan Fainzelberg be doing all the questions and answers uh, this morning on the show. We are going to dip deep into the inbox. Got a lot of emails coming through here, so we want to get to a bunch of those. I know, Stan, you get tons every day. In addition to phone calls and everything else that you deal with on a daily basis at the firm. So we want to get to that on the show this morning. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. But we always start with the week that was. Stan, how are you, brother? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I am good and ready to uh, ready to roll. What do you got for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you you uh, mentioned it kind of at the uh, the top there about how uh, this the question of vaccinations is becoming a very big question as people start coming back into the workplace. And the key, what I want to uh, to bring to our listeners' attention today is a recent case that came across my desk. Uh, It's from the United States, so again, we have to take anything that's coming from south of the border with a little bit of a grain of salt. You know, their laws are quite different from ours, but certainly I think it it illuminates this question particularly. So the case that uh, I'm referring to is a case that deals with a hospital in Houston, which provided a mandate for its employees saying that you have to get vaccinated by a certain deadline or we're going to fire you. Uh, and most of, you know, to be uh, fair, most of the employees got vaccinated. There were about 170 or so, however, who refused to get vaccinated. And just as the hospital had said, those employees were terminated. Those employees then turned around and filed a lawsuit claiming that the termination was wrongful and that the hospital did not have grounds to terminate them. Uh, and the some of the things that the judge said in this lawsuit were extremely interesting and I think applicable in Canada as well. You know, so, so one of the first arguments that the employees tried to make was saying that you know, forcing them to take this vaccine was essentially being forced or coerced into forced medical experimentation. And the judge, you know, shot that argument down very quickly, said it was a reprehensible claim, firstly, and also said that, you know, the, the decision to was being made by the hospital to keep staff, patients, and their families safe. And, you know, the employees can freely choose to accept the vaccine or not accept the vaccine. But if they choose not to accept the vaccine, they simply will have to work somewhere else. So, again, it's showing that the argument, you know, that the, the way that the plaintiffs or employees had proposed this argument was a, not, was a false dichotomy. I mean, they were saying that we either had to get the vaccine uh, or, or essentially we, we had no choice, right? And the judge was saying, well, that's not true. You do have a choice. You can get the vaccine or you can choose to work somewhere else. That was the choice that they had to make. The employees also were trying to make the claim that the vaccine itself was not safe. And here the issue was that they frankly provided no evidence that the vaccine was not safe. And the judge was relying on, you know, the colloquial evidence that we're all seeing around us, which is that the fact that this vaccine had been administered in the United States at that point, about 300 million doses and had been proven generally to be safe up until that point. The other thing that I think the judge mentioned, which was very interesting, was talking about the competing interests between, you know, the community involved, the collective, and the individual's rights that were being sort of trampled upon here. 
And the judge stated that the public's interest in having a hospital capable of caring for patients during a pandemic far outweighed the prote uh, protecting the vaccination preferences of these employees. Because again, nobody, you know, it was forcing these employees to take the vaccine. That's how they tried to present the case to the judge. But that's not really, at the end of the day, what was happening here. They were being given a choice between choosing the vaccine and choosing to continue their employment with the hospital. If they chose not to get the vaccine, then, as the judge said, they can go work somewhere else. But they were not being forced to do anything. And another quote that I thought was uh, was very interesting here was the judge stating that if, you know, kind of comparing this situation to any number of situations where limits are being imposed upon employees. And, and the judge uh, stated that if a worker refuses an assignment, you know, if they refuse to change offices, if they refuse certain start times or other directives, they could be terminated. And every employee uh, employment relationship has limits on workers' behavior in exchange for certain compensation. That's part of the bargain. Now, again, this is where I, you know, want to caution listeners to to state the, or in contrast the American laws with Canada's laws, because some of the things that the judge said there would arguably be constructive dismissals in Ontario. But I still think the point resonates that, you know, there are certain limitations on employees' behavior, conduct, that one has to accept if they choose to get, take employment with any particular employer. And in the context of a hospital, in the context of a pandemic, it certainly seems likely that this is a ruling that will be extended further and further and that you know most i think courts will find that asking employees in a hospital setting at least to be required a vaccination is you know something within the purview of an employer in this situation so and the interesting thing is after all of this and after this decision came down 150 employees still refused to get vaccinated and they either resigned or were terminated at that point. You know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, you, you know, it, it being the healthcare situation, or at least the healthcare uh, focus, may be a little different. But how do you think that would play out so far up here? How does that play out in Ontario? I mean, generally, it, it's in the states they have employment at will, which means you know the, mm -hmm. the the employees have far fewer rights. I mean, it's much more of a robust system up here as far as employees are concerned in Ontario. But how would that play out if it was a similar situation? Do you think at this point here? Well, you know, I think it's a very interesting question and certainly one that has no answer from the courts at this time. I mean, things have been trickling out slowly but surely. A lot of it in the unionized context, those tend to get uh, in front of a arbitrators faster because they're private arbitrations and they'll have to wait f through the backlog of our court system. Um, but if we're talking about just a you know non-safety uh, workplace like a hospital or a retirement home and an individual who can't claim any exemption like a disability exemption or a religious exemption, I think that they're they're going to have a really hard time arguing that an employer has to accept them back to the workplace without vaccinations. Now I don't necessarily think that the employer would be allowed to terminate an individual's employment in that situation either. You know, I think that what you know, happens from a legal perspective is that if an employee refuses that, refuses to come back or get vaccinated, the, the employer can claim that they can't accommodate the individual's preferences or medical choices in this situation. 
And effectively, they'd be put on a leave of absence until either they got the vaccine or, you know, the law, essentially the, the, the government of Ontario and government of Canada change their current medical rec, uh, recommendations when it comes to the vaccination and comes to the pandemic in general. That's what I think is going to be the issue that comes to head in Canada is whether you are allowed to place an employee on an indefinite, you know, unpaid suspension effectively, or, you know, medical leave of absence, if you will, from the employer's perspective, and whether that's a legal position for an employer to take in the face of an employee who's refusing to get vaccinated. Because again, you know, there are two competing interests here. And this was touched on in that Houston case between the community, or in this place, the other workers and their right to have a safe work environment and an individual's medical choices for themselves and their body. And I don't think it's, you know, it's an easy decision to make. And that's why I don't think that necessarily, you know, our courts will allow employers to be, to terminate people who choose to make uh, a decision in their own interests or as they see their own interests relative to getting the vaccination. That being said, I mean, I, I ultimately don't think that a judge is going to force these people or an employer to take back these employees as well, because you know, in that situation, if there were an outbreak because that person was forced into the workplace, you know, that's a lot of liability for the court to mandate an employer has to take on. And that's why I think the most likely scenario is this kind of limbo position where you still are an employee, you just can't come back to work. Yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be an interesting couple of years coming up for sure as everybody starts to you know creep back into the workplace. Some vaccinated, some fully, some refusing it. I'm talking about here in Canada. It's gonna be really interesting. But it's 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 you know it's interesting that bit of perspective. We don't quite often get a you know a week that was situation where you pull it right from uh, south of the border. And it's it's an interesting juxtaposition that the contrast between the two uh, the two places are really interesting. I mean, I, I literally had a cousin this week in Florida, not not so much employment related, but just I was flabbergasted. Went into a uh, a pizza joint in Florida, wearing a mask, and she was refused service because she was wearing a mask. They told her to go outside if you want to wear a mask and order from your car, and we'll bring you the product. Not for not wearing a mask, for wearing a mask. So that is how bent out of shape the sunshine status well that part of it anyway i I, i'm unbelievable unbelievable yeah i I think it speaks to the you know how this has just become so politicized i mean 100 especially in the united states you know it's beyond science it's beyond rational logical choices Uh, unfortunately you know things are so partisan down down south and they're frankly getting more partisan in canada as well that every every decision that's being made by one party over the other is is a line in the sand. It's the new culture war where, you know, this is your your litmus test to determine if you're loyal enough to your party or to your values or to your ideology. And it's really unfortunate because at the end of the day, I mean, a mask isn't a, a statement. It, it, uh, I, I think that's being conflated all too often. A mask is simply an individual's choice. Listen, you don't have to agree with people choosing to get masks or wear masks. You know, I think I frankly think there's a lot of individuals uh, who are, or, you know, I've heard of individuals being double vaccinated who continue to get masks. The CDC has said that's not necessary. And you, frankly, it doesn't seem based on the science that it is. But those are their choices. And yep. that's their right to make. They're not imposing any anything on us. 
in that situation. And, and that's, again, speaking to what's happening in the States, that this is just a political decision at this point. Lots of stuff to get through. We're going to dip into that email inbox. It is help at employmentlawyer.ca if you want to go there. Employment Law Show, Stan Fainzelberg is doing all the answering this morning right here on Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Help at employmentlawyer.ca, the email address you can always use. And that's what we are pulling from this morning. Stan's going to get to a bunch of answers through email as we uh, work on through the morning. And Joseph is first up, says, hey, Stan, my employer is forcing me to work on Saturday, but he knows that it's against my religion. He's threatening to let me go if I don't come in. Is there anything I can do? Well, Joseph, I mean, that sounds like a terrible situation, firstly, uh, and there's a lot you can do in that situation. First of all, I mean, it's very clearly discrimination on the basis of your religion, and your employer has to accommodate your religious uh, requests to the point of undue hardship. So unless there's an extremely good reason why he's requiring you to work on a Saturday, you know, unless you've worked Saturdays in the past, then there's very, very likely uh, he can, they cannot force you to work on the Saturday. And they certainly can't threaten to fire you or fire you just because you choose to, you know, use your religious exemption and request that accommodation. Joseph, hope that helped. If you want to reach out afterwards, I'll give you the phone number for the first time this morning. By the way, I'll give it out a few times, one 855 5900 anytime you want to get hold of Stan or remember the team that's how you do it 1855-821-5900 Gerd Deep is up next as guys my company reduced my hours from 40 to 25 a week since August last August I guess they've not said uh, when they plan on returning us to full time can I somehow force them to give me my full time hours back well Gurdip, I mean you can't force them to give you your full time hours back at the end of the day the, the employer has a right to, you know, not a right, but ultimately is the one who controls your schedule and they can impose certain changes upon you, which you can either choose to accept or choose not to accept. And if you choose not to accept them, well, that's a constructive dismissal. Uh, and I think it is important a little bit here, John, just to point out the difference between constructive dismissal in the regular context and in the current pandemic context, because in a regular context, you know, Gurdjieff, there's no question that the reduction from 40 to 25 hours, the corresponding reduction, I'm sure that comes with that in terms of your salary and compensation, that's a clear constructive dismissal and, and you can walk away and get your severance. During the pandemic, there is an added layer of uncertainty here. And, and that added layer is unfortunately our, our government's decision to create these regulations, the infectious disease uh, leave uh, regulations, which are about as clear as mud. Uh, they haven't been explained very well. They're poorly drafted, in my opinion. And we've now got uh, three cases that deal with these regulations in the constructive dismissal context, two of which have now said it is a constructive dismissal, and one judge who said it's not a constructive dismissal. So even judges don't know what the hell these regulations mean. And, you know, that's my, the one thing that I would add to this question, Gurdjieff, is that it, there is that layer of uncertainty. You know, I think the fact that there's now two judges and, you know, this 
the second case I literally only learned about this morning, uh, and I think it only came out last week. So, you know, that certainly shows the way that the courts are seemingly trying to understand these regulations and their interplay with the common law and the constructive dismissals. And, you know, I know that the two, two of those cases are being appealed and the Court of Appeal will be weighing in and will present what is the final word on, on this question. Uh, until that time, though, there's always going to be this ambiguity when it comes to a constructive dismissal during the pandemic, when, you know, when we're talking about layoffs, reduction in hours, reduction in salary or compensation. So many companies were did that last summer, and now they're going to have to deal with the fallout of whether or not that was a legal decision at the time. And unfortunately, we won't know whether that was a legal decision or not, I would say, until 2022 when the Court of Appeal weighs in. You know, Gurdjieff mentioned though, it was last August. I mean, even with the uh, you know infectious disease emergency leave and all these these things, which you say are clear as mud mm-hmm. from the government. I mean, isn't doesn't he isn't he kind of over the threshold uh, as far as time wise to say you know what? No, no, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost a year. I mean, it's almost a year he's been doing this. Well, you know, it's a question of what they told him to some degree, John. Uh, because if they told him we're going to reduce your your hours and it's going to be temporary. Well, then, you know, he can't have accepted that reduction because, you know, what was he accepting? He was accepting at best a temporary reduction. And if the companies, if he continues to protest in the the sense of continues to ask them, when am I getting my hours back? When's that going to happen? You told us it was temporary. If you put it, you know, did that legwork to show that you were protesting this decision throughout, then, you can still make the claim that, well, I never accepted that. At best, you told me it was temporary, and that's my understanding. Now it seems that this is a permanent decision, and I'm certainly not agreeing to that, and I'm going to claim constructive dismissal on the basis of that now, notwithstanding the fact that this happened almost a year ago. Again, the email address, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Pang is up next. This guy's a person at work keeps harassing and bullying me. Uh, I talked to HR, but they won't do anything, and I'm very frustrated and not sure what to do because I cannot afford to lose this job. Who do I go to about this? Mm-hmm. You know, John, I think when we talk about all, all these questions and you know, employment in the legal context so often that we forget it. I think I find sometimes about the real life implications of what you know what these things actually mean for people. Because in Pang's situation, I mean, I can tell him it's a constructive dismissal to have a, uh, a toxic work environment and he doesn't have to stay there and he can he can walk away and claim a severance. But the reality is, as he says, and this is true for many people in Ontario, they can't afford to do that. That's not, you know, even though that is a decision that's within their right to make, many people financially can't afford to make that decision because the reality of claiming constructive dismissal is that you're going to have to walk away from your job. You're not, I mean, even though you will be entitled to a severance, it's unlikely that your employer will agree with that and you'll likely have to end up suing them and fighting over that question. So when that is not an option, when when someone cannot afford to leave their job, despite the the toxic work environment, despite any sort of changes that might be happening to their job. You know, at least in the context of a toxic work environment, there are other avenues. 
you know, and the main avenue that I, I like to advocate for is the Ministry of Labor here, because you can go to the ministry and claim that you're being harassed, that your employer is not meeting its legal obligations on under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to maintain a work, uh, harassment-free work environment, and the Ministry of Labor will come in and conduct its own investigation. And they'll talk to you, they'll talk to other employees, they'll talk to the employer, and then they have a large amount of discretion to impose uh, to impose whatever they think the remedy should be. And that remedy could be requiring further training, you know, imposing real limits on the way that the employer can manage its workforce here by maybe saying, by saying things that like, you know, you have to make sure this manager doesn't deal with this person or that this manager goes out and gets sensitivity harassment training. Uh, so if, if ultimately a constructive dismissal is not an option, which is what it sounds like to me, you know, this is happening in this situation that Pang is saying he can't afford to lose his job. I think the best avenue in that situation is to, first of all, you can stop working. I mean, you're allowed to take a break and effectively this would be like a medical leave of absence. You can go to your doctors, get a medical note saying that you're on a stress leave. And while you're on that stress leave, you know, if you have benefits, you can utilize those benefits to at least have some income coming in. Even if you don't have benefits, the employee, uh, Service Canada and EI have a, uh, a program for sick leave, which will give you EI benefits for a period of up to 15 weeks while you're still on the sick leave. And, and using that time while you're away from the workplace to try to remedy the situation by talking to your, you know, if, if HR is doing nothing, you can go above their head, you know, talk to this, talk to the executives. They may not frankly know what's going on, especially if you're talking about a very large uh, corporation where, you know, there's so many people, you, it wouldn't be expected that the people at the highest rung would know what's going on. And, and may, bringing that to their attention will impose obligations on them to do something now. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned. I know we got to take a break in about two minutes, but you know, you mentioned very large corporation people at the top. This may not, you know, trickle up as mm -hmm. it were to to their ears. But what if Pang was in the situation where it was, you know, the the a very small place. The person he reports to is the one doing harassing. There is no HR formal HR department. It's it's the guy who's his boss who's doing this. Then what's the avenue? Well, I think the the avenue again, if you can't afford to to walk away and claim constructive dismissals, look at your benefits see if you have short-term disability. Uh, and if you do, talk to your doctor about going on sick leave and getting yourself out of that environment. I mean, I think the first, first and foremost, when I talk to clients about these situations is we have to deal with this environment that you're in right now. Let's not worry so much about the, lega the legality of it because the legality of it will play out over weeks, months, uh, even years if it's a, it's a really unreasonable employer. But the reality of it is you are there right now every day dealing with this and it's, and it's imposing a cost upon you, I'm sure, from a health perspective. So I often try to get people out of that situation first. And, and once they're out of that situation and once they've made the decision that, that they don't want to go back, if they have that financial cushion of disability benefits of EI sick pay, they can at least have something to rely on while they're out there trying to find a new job. And at the same time, you know, we can, while they're trying to find that new job, we can write to the company and claim constructive dismissal and try to 
try and negotiate a package for you as well. So there are multiple avenues. They're not gr always great choices at the end of the day. I mean, constructive dismissal is not an easy choice for any employee to make, and I, and I don't envy having to make that decision. But sometimes when an environment is as toxic as, you know, as some of the most egregious offenses that I've seen, then, you know, first and foremost, you have to deal with it, I think, from a mental health perspective, and you have to get out of there. Let's take a short pause, and uh, on the other side of the break, we'll get to more of your emails as we're chopping our way through the inbox. It is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Employment Law Show, Saturday morning, Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. All right, we are back at it, and welcome back to the show. We'll get back to our emails here in uh, just a moment. We've got Bill standing by. Hi, Bill. Uh, I've worked for this company for 20 years. Now I'm a sole proprietor. I get a contract, a truck driver, so they pay my plates and my insurance. I'm paid mm -hmm. by the hour. I work only for them. I can't work for anyone else. This company has a reputation of um, cutting wages, so we're going to be moving at the end of the month to this new terminal. And I can, am I, could I be, uh, my employee or am I uh, a contractor? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, from what you've said, Bill, based on, you know, the fact that you're there for 20 years, you're saying you only work there. They, they own the truck and the license and the insurance. Uh, they tell you where to be. They set the comp your compensation. That's a very clear employer relationship to me. Uh, I don't think I, I, I own the truck. I pay for the maintenance and the fuel. Even in still, if they if they own the license and the plates, you know, you yeah. literally can't use that truck without them. Yeah. So they, even though they can, I mean, if anything, I would say that's actually, you know, they're, what they're probably trying to do is they're trying to offload the cost of inventory and having the truck themselves to you. Like a lot of these relationships, these fake contractor relationships really are. It's about offloading costs from the employer to the employee. And that's what, you know, I would say is going on there when they're saying, well, you own the truck, but you don't own the insurance and don't own the license plates for your own truck. Now, does it matter if their companies, they're international, they, they go to the states, does the rules change at all? Is it, is it a provincial law or? Sorry, so are you a truck driver that goes to the, uh, the I don't know. I always stay, I, I'm paid by the hour and I stay, I'm home, home I go to, mm -hmm. I'm in Ontario. Uh, you drive in Ontario, yeah. Yeah. But you're saying, what about from the, the, let's say, the terminal that you drive out of? Are there trucks that drive out of that terminal that cross borders? Yes, they're highway guys, but they're usually paid by the mile. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, then very likely that company is going to be a federally regulated company, which in some ways is actually better for you because in the under the federal statute, the Canada Labor Code, uh, it actually defines a dependent contractor as an employee as well. So okay. in, in fact, you don't even have to worry about, am I you know, uh, a independent contractor or an employee? Because first of all, you're clearly a dependent contractor. If you only work for one place, you're 100% dependent on them. The rest of the factors in that you know, context and in that uh, determination don't matter because the only factor in determining whether you're dependent is how exclusive and how dependent financially you are. And so if you're 100% financially dependent on them, under the Canada Labor Code, you are effectively 
defined as an employee, even if you are a dependent contractor. Now, so if we move terminal and they want to change my rate of pay, things like that, is that constructive criticism, uh, constructive, um, what do you call it? Dismissal? Dismissal? Yeah, depending on uh, a couple of things, like how far are you moving and how much are they actually changing your rate of pay, there's a certain amount of flexibility that companies have in that regard. But yeah, if they're significant, if they're fundamental, as they would be termed in, uh, in the employment law context, then absolutely can be a constructive dismissal. Okay, when that happens, then I'll contact you then if uh, there's any se severe changes or anything. Thank you so much for your information. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. And I'm going to give you the number like I have so far this morning. Here is how you reach out to Stan, and uh, it is team one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And uh, I'll give you the email address as well, help at employmentlawyer.ca, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Ariel's up next, and uh, emails says, guys, I have not taken vacation in two years. Can I ask my company to pay my vacation out since I wasn't able to use it? So you can certainly ask them to pay it out. You know, whether they have to depends on a number of factors like their policy. Uh, do they have a policy of carrying over vacation? Do they have a policy of paying it out? Uh, the other thing, Ariel, is that you could just take, you know, if you want to get paid it out, just take the vacation and they'll pay it for you while you're on vacation. Uh, I talked to so many people, John, who, for you know, I think reasons of loyalty and just routine, uh, don't take vacation. They think it it shows that they're more loyal or more dedicated than others. And they haven't. I've talked to people who haven't taken vacation in more than two years, in many years. And I can, from my perspective, I don't really understand it because you know, first of all, I think vacation is necessary as part of an individual's work life balance. Uh, well, I appreciate that some people either like to work or, you know, want to show that level of dedication. Taking vacation is a necessity to recharge your batteries so you can be a better employee. And there's a lot of studies that have now come out that show the benefits of time off from work in recharging your, your batteries, in coming back and being a better employee, in being more efficient. But beyond that as well, I mean... Too many times when you don't take vacation for that long, your employer just assumes you're not entitled to it. And it just gets lost kind of in the shuffle of, of it all that maybe after six or seven years when you get terminated and you say, well, what about my vacation? Well, now you have to establish that you haven't taken vacation. Now it's an open legal question. Now you're fighting over all these entitlements, which you have, you know, no question, but you still have to prove that you didn't take it. And, and Yeah. I mean, that's why I honestly, I think I tell people just, just take the vacation, use that time. You know, it's, you have that right. You're going to get paid for it. Uh, and frankly, you probably need it from a mental health perspective as well. Now, as far as kind of, you know, dovetailing off that answer, as far as scheduling vacation, I mean, most workplaces are pretty cool with people, you know, submitting when they want to take time off, et cetera, et cetera. But from a legal standpoint, your employer can schedule your vacation for you. I can say, Stan, this year you're taking all your vacation in February. Enjoy. But they can do that. Most workplaces, I would imagine, yeah. just for morale, don't. But that is, they can, because we get that question often uh, after we've answered something about vacation. Someone will call and say, hey, can they schedule my vacation? Do they have the right to do that? Yeah, no, 100%, John. I think the most clear example of that that you know, everybody's probably aware of are teachers. 
teachers have their vacations scheduled for them in terms of Christmas break, in terms of March break, in terms of the summer break. They really can't take vacation outside of those times. You know, they can take a leave of absence, of course. No one's can, if you're sick, you're sick. But, you know, your vacations have to fall within that time period because that's when your employer mandates that you have to take your vacation. Yeah, I never thought about, t- I mean, union setting, of course, but I actually never thought about that because yeah. people just assume that you can, uh, you know, take your vacation when you want. Now, it's different, though, if you have something booked, you purchase airline tickets, you got a trip planned, and the, and the employer says, oh, no, we, we can't let you go in July. Something's changed. you got to stay at work. That they can't do. Well, as long as they've already approved it and you've relied on that approval, you know, I've, I've heard of a number of individuals that I've spoken to where, you know, they just book it assuming it's going to be approved and then it's not approved because the employer says, well, I actually need you and somebody else has already, you know, contacted me about taking vacation that time. So, we, so unfortunately, we can't let you take vacation. And then the employee has the unfortunate choice to decide, are they going to just disregard their employer's uh, direct order and live with the consequences? Because... You know, to be clear, that would be insubordination in that situation. Or, or do you unfortunately just let the tickets lapse and lose, you know, all the, the money that you put towards that? So that's, you know, for anyone listening, you, know, you should get your vacation approved before you start buying things. Now, if you, it has been approved and the situation changes and your employer is now saying, no, 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 we can't actually let you take vacation. Well, I think the, the employer is going to have a lot of problems. I mean, they've already approved it. You've relied on that representation. You, you know, to the extent that they can even take it back, they would, at a minimum, I would say, have to compensate you for your losses because, again, you relied on their representation. Gotcha. Let's take one more uh, short break. We'll try to get to a couple more emails as well. Help at employmentlawyer.ca as well. We'll continue Employment Law Show, Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. A few minutes to go, so you got some time. This would be the time. Any other time, you can have a, a wonderful website for any resource when it comes to employment matters, including the severance pay calculator. That would be pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, free and anonymous. you want to check that out. Uh, Albert is next up in the email. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. He says, hey, guys, if my company relocates in a different city, am I obligated to relocate or can I refuse? Will I be entitled to any severance in that case? So, Albert, I mean, I would say that generally speaking, you can refuse to relocate from it to a different city, and that would not be a resignation, but that would be a constructive dismissal. Now, there's two scenarios where I would say you can't refuse. Uh, Number one is if your contract already has a clause in it that you agree to that says you understand that we can relocate you uh, as needed, and you agree that that's not a constructive dismissal. If that's in a contract that you signed, you know, in proper conditions in terms of signing it before you started, being given time to review it with a lawyer, uh, and assuming the rest of the contract doesn't fail for, you know, because it's illegal in some other way, because, you know, there's now case law that suggests that if a termination clause is illegal, well, then the entirety of the contract fails, including the clause that we're talking about, re- about relocation, all they're yeah. saying is, well, you a little bit of a little bit of disconnection there, Stan. We still got you. Yeah. He's, he's he's chopping up a little bit, Stan. We still got you, buddy. 
If you can hear us, got to replay that uh, replay that answer. If you can't, if not, we'll take a quick twenty second break. See if we can reconnect with you. Let's take a let's take a quick pause. The go and come back. We'll see if we can uh, knock on his door and get him back for the last few minutes of the show. Right here, Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. At the mercy of technology. There you go, Stan. I think you're back <laughs> with us, but uh, maybe just quickly uh, reiterate uh, what you said about that question uh, from our last email. Yes, mercy of technology. It's a yeah, this frustration I experience all too often working from home these days. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, we're, we're all yeah. Yeah. So going back to the point I was making. So generally speaking, that is a constructive dismissal unless you have, you've agreed to it in a contract. There's a clause in there that you signed and agreed to that. <laughs> I stand. Employer has a Hello. Hello. Yeah, we got you there. This is this is interesting. Okay, good. Stan is on the surface of the moon, if anybody's wondering. Um, yeah, <laughs> if you could squeeze this one in in about a minute and a half, pal. Um, yeah. Part of a contract, so, fine. But other than that? Other than that, if it's a short distance, if you're know, if you only being asked, if you drive in 30 minutes in one direction, and they're just saying you got to drive in 30 minutes in the other direction, that's probably not a constructive dismissal as well because it's not really changing much in terms of your employment terms. So if you're being asked to, if you live in Burlington and your job's moving to Oakville, I mean, they're, they're sister cities. They are, you know, different cities, but they're right next to each other and they're both pretty small. I mean, that might not make it as far as constructive dismissal, right? Exactly. And especially if you already drive to Hamilton to go work, well, if you're just driving to Oakville, which is roughly about the same distance, you're not mm-hmm. adding much in terms of a, a new term or a new imposition upon you by moving the location. Yep. There you go. We're uh, just about done. No technology notwithstanding, there's still a, a very a structured way and robust way to get in touch with Stan as uh, as we move on here for the rest of the day. I'll give you the phone numbers. It's one 821 Again, one 821 All the emails we read and where you can send them to Stan and the member of the team as well, help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's where they'll get answered. And I did mention the website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. That's got tons of information about uh, employment law uh, in large about constructive dismissal and the severance pay calculator. Are you a contractor? All these different things. There'll be some COVID information there as well. Again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, absolutely free. And if you go to employmentlawyer.ca, that would be the firm website. That is where you'll find links to our long-running 30-minute TV show as well. You can check that out at your leisure. We'll pick it up again a little later on the weekend and, of course, next week. Until next time, Employment Law Show right here on Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.